Turn with me to Hosea chapter 13 as we continue to study the book of Hosea. Hosea 13, we'll be looking at it in its entirety today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. That you would open our minds to learn from you. That you would show us our own wickedness. Even as we rest in you, we still seek the things of the world. So Lord, we pray that you would draw us back to you. We pray that you would use your word to do that very thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read through this text, this uh, Hosea 13 represents kind of a finishing word on the judgment of Ephraim as a nation of Israel. And it made me think of just the rise and fall of civilizations in general. And when historians talk about rise and fall of civilizations, they normally point to one or two specific events or decisions that were made by leadership. Something that happened to that civilization, and they say, well, this is what eventually led to the fall of such and such civilization. Could be a massive kind of climate thing where that led to drought. Could be disease, which has led to the fall of civilizations. It could be more obvious things like uh, foreign invaders or some sort of economic collapse from within. Uh, for most, though even one event can be pointed to or two events and say these are the things, these events are usually made worse by the slow degradation of the values that once made that civilization great, even if it's not values that we would agree with. There's just the slow decline from those values. And so for Israel today in our text, we see this idea coming to bear, the slow degradation that's due to their constant idolatry, their constant turning away from the Lord and to other gods. While historians will point to the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC as the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, it was this long-term movement away from their God and to pagan gods that would eventually lead to their demise. We know this because of the teaching of Scripture, which also teaches us about this Assyrian invasion. And something that you won't read in any history book other than, of course, the Bible, that it was the God of history that orchestrated this whole thing on behalf of his people in order to bring about redemption for them, he had Assyria take them over. One of the biggest problems that we have with God is that he doesn't conform to our way of thinking and our way of doing things. He never does things the way that we want him to. And we're always left confused and wondering. We saw this in our study in 1 Samuel this morning as well. Because no human would ever devise their own destruction in order to bring about salvation. But that's exactly what God does. So not only do we read about the destruction of God's people in this passage, but we also read about the destruction of their greatest enemies, our greatest enemies, sin and death. And even in this, in the midst of this chapter of judgment, we are given a great picture of redemption which ultimately comes to us 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we work through the text, we'll consider two main ideas. First, God's defeat of Israel. And then second, God's defeat of sin and death. So with that, let's look together at the text. Hosea 13, reading it in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 13, starting at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or the smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It is I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. In the iniquity of Ephraim is, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, the sin is kept in store, the pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish, um, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and the fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Some very graphic language for us. We'll get to that in a moment. So for a little bit of context, Hosea has in many ways, been a very hard book, as we just read that verse 16, demonstrating that. And this has a lot to do with the sharp swings in emotion that we've experienced as we move through the book of Hosea over and over. We're taken from one extreme to the other, just over and over. These feel-good kinds of moments, and then we read a verse like verse 16, and it kind of takes us back began in dealing with Hosea's family, the anger of Gomer's betrayal of Hosea, but the happiness that we all felt when 
there was some restoration there in their family. We have this constant swinging back and forth, hearing of God's judgment of his people, and then about how God couldn't possibly give them up. And as we look at verse 14 in the text today, where God looks at death and says, where is your sting? Almost taunting death. About how Assyria is going to come and remove Israel from the map. But yet God is going to keep a people for himself for all eternity. And the reason that we struggle with this swing is because we are finite. And we have difficulty experiencing this wide swing of emotions at the same time. Which is why we often have problems with God's sense of judgment. Because we can't possibly understand how judgment and salvation are bound up together. It's hard. It is the whole life of a believer really is understanding that idea. It's why the words like redemption and restoration are so important to us. These words that we oftentimes gloss over as Christians. Redemption and restoration. Redemption means that something was lost. Right? That something was lost and needed to be purchased again. Restoration means that something was good, but for some reason or another is no longer good and needs to be restored to its former state. We get so lost with these words, with redemption and restoration, that we forget that the state of being lost and tarnished deserves retribution. In the eyes of a holy God. And he didn't make those things lost or tarnished. So there has to be a reckoning. And this is the tension that is found throughout scripture. This understanding that sin necessitated the coming of Jesus. So as we understand, and we understand that he took the judgment that we were due. So as we move through the text today, I hope that that we see that clearly in Hosea 13. Most of this passage deals with judgment, but the word of redemption is so strong that it covers the rest. And so that brings us to the first point, God's defeat of Israel. Look with me again at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. This one verse really details the rise and fall of Israel as a civilization. It even gives us a reasoning for that happening. At one point, Israel was so powerful in that surrounding area that when they spoke, there was trembling. But because of sin, they died. And what was the sin? Well, it was the worship of Baal. If you read through the Old, Test- Old uh, Testament history books, which we are studying right now in Sunday school, you read the name of Baal as much as you read any other name, really. The name of Baal, and the worship of this pagan god, ultimately leads to the destruction of God's people. In verses 2 and 3, you see the sin and the consequence of that sin a little bit more fuller, with verse 2 giving us a bit of the kind of the silliness associated with idol worship. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images Idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Which is an odd saying. It's a picture of a skillful craftsman, but the skill is used to make something horrible. 
a golden calf, which in the history of Israel represents idol worship, a horrible thing that is, continues to show up over and over, even as we've read from this book of Hosea, as those golden calves were remade in the northern kingdom. The quote there is supposed to help us see this utter, utter disgusting nature of pagan worship. That those who sacrifice humans, which is this horrible thing, kiss calves. The horror of human sacrifice set against the ridiculousness of someone kissing the statue of a baby cow. This really sums up the stupidity of idol worship. Due to this, Israel is like the mist and goes away. We see that in verse 3. They Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or the smoke from a window. God reminds us of his first commandment there in verse 4, that you shall have no other gods before me, and then details what he will do as a result of breaking that commandment in verses 7 and 8, where we have some very detailed language. So I... And to them, like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. This is the Lord speaking of his idolatrous people. I think the picture is very important. I think as Hosea, as much as any Old Testament writer particularly in the prophetic literature, gives us these incredible word pictures. Here you have the picture of a mother bear with cubs. We all understand this, at least maybe not personally, because we're all still here. Uh, When you hear of a camper getting mauled by a bear, everyone assumes that this camper probably accidentally stumbled upon a mother bear with her cubs. We all understand the picture here, right? This mother bear has cubs. Someone stumbles upon them. The mother bear protects the cubs. An unarmed human being is no threat to an adult mother bear at all. But the mother bear doesn't care. Doesn't care that the human is absolutely no threat. She defends her cubs as if she was fighting for her own life. This is a picture of God's jealousy for his people, for his most prized possession. We'd like to think that God would instead just wipe out the altars of Baal, right? Maybe if he just got rid of Baal worship, that his people would would turn around. Maybe if he just got rid of the priests of Baal, right? If he just killed all the priests of Baal, that then maybe the people would instead turn to him. But we know that this doesn't work. We've read Israel's history. We know that that happened. They destroyed the the altars of Baal and they killed all the priests and the, the people still worshiped. Instead... God goes after his own people, scattering them. This is, a, this is in verses 15 and 16. You see this graphically detailed as we read about the invasion of Assyria on the people of God. And we have this picture, this vivid and graphic picture of the horrors of war, right? With the falling by the sword and the little ones dashed to pieces. This is very graphic language. Right? We won't don't typically expect this to come from the Bible, but God is not pulling any punches when he's helping us to see how horrible the thing it is for this nation to come in against his people and yet for that to be his own orchestration. We don't understand 
our own futility compared to God's desire for us to know him and to be known by him. We talked about this several weeks now, like the spoiled child who insults his or her parents. We take all of our gifts and we walk away from the Lord to worship a golden calf or a rock that promises us something special. Rather than going and staying with the one who's given us all things, who created all things, we want to take our things and go find something less nice. It's not golden calves and rocks for us, obviously. We're not worshiping those things. It's actually something that's much worse for us, since most of our idols can barely be imagined, much less actually constructed. You know, there's not a golden cow that can be melted down, but instead we have these abstract ideas in our head. We desire wealth because we think that it gives us security. Even though no one, no one currently existing or no one that has ever existed has been given anything that's eternal using wealth. We desire the approval of others so much. Even though our own fickle natures, we consider our own fickle natures, preclude us from approving anyone more than we approve of ourselves. Yet we want the approval of others. We desire control. We can't even control our own thoughts. Much less other people or the thoughts of other people. But yet we seek after that as if it's something that we could actually obtain. And all of these gods, all of these gods that we sacrifice to each other, all of these gods that we kiss the proverbial calf for are useless and fleeting. And were it not for the infinite grace of our Lord, we would be left chasing after the wind, hoping that today would finally be the day that we caught up to it and were able to grab it for ourselves. But in his grace, he saw fit to raise us up from the dead and bring us to new life in Christ. And that brings us to the second point, God's defeat of sin and death. Look with me at verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from the power of death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion. Is hidden from my eyes. Again, I'll differ here with the ESV because there's no sense of which this statement in verse 14 is a question. There's no interrogative there at all. There's no question tense at all. And so these are statements from the Lord. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. And then there's this taunting of death. Where's your plagues? O grave, O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes, meaning that the Lord is going to have no compassion over those two enemies. This seems to come out of nowhere, right? All of a sudden the Lord is turning into a lion and and wrecking his people. He's judging them. But then we read that he is going to go after death and the grave. Where does this come from? Well, If we've been reading through the book of Hosea and studying through it, we know that this is pretty common, right? Remember in chapter 11, we were reading about the judgment of Israel when all of a sudden God exclaims, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? The picture of a parent who has disciplined their child 
and almost exasperated with that, but also says, I have no intention of giving up my child. If you're a parent, you understand this. If you're a child, that's all of us, of course. You've been on the receiving end of this at some point. There's not only a shift in tone here, but a shift away from Israel and toward these two great enemies, death and the grave. This makes us think about where did these come from in the first place? These things entered into the world with the sin of Adam and Eve. Before they sinned, what did they have? They had life. They had it abundantly. They were told to eat of every fruit of the garden. But with their sin came death. Yet even as God was pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and on the serpent, he gave them the promise of salvation. And he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis three fifteen. The serpent whose intent was to bring death upon the human race would be thwarted by the one who actually ordains all things that come to pass as God had a plan of salvation for his people. That there would be one coming, he says, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, signifying the end of the grave, the end of death, and the return to life, this return to the garden. Paul provides a deeper understanding of God's proclamation here in Hosea 13. In 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to begin turning there. 1 Corinthians 15 is a fantastic chapter for understanding the benefits of the resurrection for the life of the believer. And it's near the end of that chapter that Paul deals with this passage in Hosea 13. So I want to read from that, verses 54 through 57 of 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very long chapter. Again, I encourage you to study that because, again, the, the benefits of the resurrection, why did Jesus rise from the dead? There's nothing more important in the life of the believer but understand that Paul just saw these teachings in the Old Testament, which is what we see here. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through this passage, we understand that we have in Christ put on the imperishable, that we have been raised to new life in Christ, that the new life is not one that's going away either, but it's one that's going to last forever. The mortal has put on immortality, yet death is still something that we experience as a believer. But what has happened to the sting of death, meaning what happened to its its power to do anything to us. The sting of death has been taken completely away because Christ died once and for all. We read in Revelation 20 even that death and Hades, or death and the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire. These things will have one last go at us, 
will all die. The current death rate is one for one. But the power of death is completely stripped away. And it will be finally defeated upon the return of Jesus. In verse 56 connects us to this concept of sin and death being inextricably joined together. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. It relays to us the power of sin, which is the law. The law shows us our inability to measure up to God's perfect standard. And because of God's law, he must judge us. He must. But because we started with the, the first commandment, we started with that first one there and back in verse 4 of Hosea 13. And we couldn't even follow that. We couldn't not have gods before God. And we went down that list. And because of that, we deserve death and the grave. Yet in Christ, we get neither permanently. We experience them, sure, but they have no power. They have no sting. Because in Christ, we have victory over these enemies because he fulfilled the terms of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law, then offered himself as a living sacrifice. He took our idolatry upon himself so that we might in exchange receive his righteousness. So when God says in Hosea 13, 14, that he shall ransom us from the power of the grave, the payment he intends to render for that ransom is his only begotten son. And because of that payment, he can say, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? In Christ, those enemies are defeated. And we, brothers and sisters in Christ, receive the victory. The key to restoration and redemption, then, is not any kind of victory that we can secure for ourselves. Rather, it is found only in Christ. If you do not have Christ, you cannot have that victory. In fact, you'll stand before a holy God who is jealous and jealousy and in his jealousy defends his law and judges all transgressors accordingly. Rather than being delivered from death, you'll face an eternal kind of death. So my call to you then is to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved from this death. Repent and believe in Jesus and find everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, we are recipients of this great reward, yet we are still idolaters. So cast down your idols. They are unable to save. Rather, they are only bring death. Cast down your idols and turn again to Jesus. In Him, we find rest and peace. And in Him, there is no longer judgment, but redemption and restoration. Let's go to Him and pray. Oh, Jesus, as we read these words in Hosea, in Hosea 13, as you proclaim that death has no sting, that the grave has no power, that sin and death are defeated because you came and defeated them on behalf of your people. Lord, help us to stop chasing after the wind, to stop bowing down before other gods, and instead 
bow before you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who came that we might have redemption, that we might have restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand now and sing our response to God's word.